Hey, if you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. They are half sheets because normally for a summer series, we do a half sheet. And this was originally going to be our summer series, but we moved it to the fall because we did that Forgive series. We gave you tons of notes. So we actually simplified this for the rest of the year. On the front side, you get a place to write some notes. You get the verses that we're going to go through. You get four questions, the same four questions every week right now throughout the end of the year to kind of focus on what we talk about. And on the back, you get a recap of what we're going to talk about today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. And it says, However, Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it were not enough for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and you're like, oh, that guy, yep, that guy. He even married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he then proceeded to serve and worship Baal. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what we can learn throughout the scriptures for these people that you have placed there in, in front of us for us to look at their lives, you know, the, the good and the bad of the people who are in the Bible. And I ask as we learn from them, we would then begin to live and walk differently and see the world in a way that you do, and that we would trust you in the midst of things that we don't understand because you are always good, and you are sovereign, and you are holy. So teach us to trust you this morning. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so as I said, we're doing this series called Not So Little Women, where we look at different stories of women in the Bible, because too often what you do is you hear stories about the guys, and I thought it'd be great to talk about women in the Bible. And I mentioned that I was going to talk about very godly women and maybe some rebellious, sinful women in the midst of this, and I had written the entire series and then realized I didn't write about any horrible women. And I'm like, okay, so now I'm going to. And so I went back. So I'm giving you this in the third week, but really it's the last one that I wrote for the entire thing. Um, but we're going to look at the low-hanging fruit in the Bible, this woman called Jezebel. Okay, Jezebel. It's like, oh, evil, evil woman. Now, uh, our one preacher did a sermon on Jezebel, and he called it the woman who ruined a king. Now, I find that laughable because Ahab, her husband, did not need any help by anybody else for becoming a mess. None of us do either. There are people in our lives that we will connect ourselves to that are not good for us. In the book of Genesis, you got this guy named Judah, ancestor of Jesus. And Judah has this friend called Hurrah. If you have a friend named Hurrah, look out. Because every time he hangs around this guy, just not great things happen. His friend, hurrah. We are responsible for our own actions, though, even though we have friends that kind of pull us into these directions. Ahab didn't need Jezebel to sin. Jezebel didn't need Ahab to sin. They could have spurred one another on to worship and love Jesus better, but they didn't. And so we're going to call this kind of an even match. Uh, you might have friends with like this. Every time you hang out with them, you wake up the next day and you're like, man, I should not hang out with them anymore. But you do anyway. All right, Jezebel. All right, so let's start this. Who was Jezebel? Well, simply from the starting verses, it tells you she was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. That's who she was. What do we know? Well, we know she worshiped false gods, and then she leads Ahab in the same direction. In the Hebrew text, when it says, and he, Ahab, then proceeded to serve and worship Baal, this writing means that she introduced him to Baal, but he was more than happy to go and worship this false god. Now, historically, 
Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, was a priest king. He was a priest first, and then he was a king. Ethbaal might even be a title for him, because Eth means with or towards, and then Baal, Baal is the name of that false god. Apparently, his daughter was also with or for Baal. And you might think, yeah, but Jezebel probably gets a bum rap, because the people in Israel were writing about her, and they didn't like her. Well, we have extra biblical sources that talk about Jezebel and Ahab, and they all agree that Jezebel opposed the worship of the God of Israel, essentially trying to undermine and demean him. Secondly, she neglected the rights and well-being of her subjects. And third, she started an internal conflict in Israel that lasted for decades. Now, Jezebel, her name is probably more likely Hesepaal, which is just like her dad, Ethbaal, and it means wife of, or my husband is, Baal. And what that tells you is her priority was first to this false god before it was ever to Ahab, because she is first married to this false god before Ahab. Now, Warren Wiersbe is a Bible commentator, and he talks about if you get your name in the dictionary, you have to do either something really good or, or really evil. Like you take a diesel. Anybody own a diesel-powered vehicle? Anybody? Okay, well, that is named after a guy named Rudolf Diesel, German uh, auto um, uh, inventor, and now today we just call it a diesel. Uh, gymnastics and ballet, people wear leotards. That's named after Jules Leotard, who was an acrobat in the dictionary. Now we just call them leotards. Anybody like sandwiches? Okay, sandwiches. Uh, this is from John Montague. Okay, John Montague. And he was the Earl of... There you go. He is the Earl of Sandwich. He's so smart, he put some meat between two pieces of bread. I just think he didn't want to do the dishes. Uh, but anyway, he, he was the fourth Earl of Sandwich and apparently liked to gamble. In the middle of a heated round at a card table in 1762, historians say he ate nothing but a piece of roast beef between two slices of toasted bread because he could hold it in one hand. That allowed him to gamble with the other, eat with the other hand without having to pause for a meal. Dictionary, sandwich. All you gamblers, there you go, right? It's in your wheelhouse. So Jezebel actually has her name in the dictionary. And if you look up the name Jezebel, it's synonymous with a wicked, shameless woman. Now, there are charismatic churches today who like call everything a Jezebel. Oh, it's the spirit of the Jezebel. It's Jezebel this and Jezebel that. Kind of like Judas. Judas starts off disciple of Jesus, right? And now Judas is a, a backstabber or a, or a betrayer. That's who he is if you look it up in the dictionary. So who is Jezebel? She is the daughter of a pagan priest wife of a false god, and wife of a terrible king. What then is her story? Well, I kind of think she might get a little bit of a bum rap here in a raw deal because her father would have been the worst role model ever. She probably had a ton, ton of trauma in her early life. Uh, Sidonian, you know, which is what her father was, the king of the Sidonians, also translates as Phoenician. And before he was a priest for Baal, he would have been a priest for Astarte. And when you look in the Old Testament, you will see two words, Ashereth and Asherah. Asherah was a goddess of sex, and she is worshipped in the Old Testament. People would erect a statue of her that was of a naked woman, and I'm going to be very politically correct here, uh, with a very large baby delivery orifice. That, that's what they would look like, and if they didn't do that, they would erect um, a, a male baby-making part that was, that was really large. That's what they would do. Now, people today say, but we don't worship these false gods. We're not primitive like that. Okay, how obsessed is our culture with sex? How obsessed is our culture with Asherah? Do you know that pornography is a business where people will spend more on it than country music, jazz music, classical music, Broadway plays, and ballets combined? 
up to 20% conservative estimate of all web searches are for pornography. As of 2017, six years ago, pre-COVID, 74,000 websites were devoted just to sex. That's not like nudie pics. That is just sex. We love Asherah. Asherah would then go hand in hand with Baal. He is seen as the natural god of wealth and prosperity. Now, do you know in the 90s in America, we had more shopping malls than we did high schools? Today, we all just shop on Amazon. And now there's this big monopoly lawsuit against Amazon. How dare they have so much of a market share? Well, you all shop there. You go somewhere, you're like, hmm, I wonder how much that is on Amazon. Y'all do it. I, I know it. More people go shopping every week than attend religious services. In 2018, pre-COVID, more Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated college. We still worship both these gods. So ask yourself this question. How are the kids in our culture doing? Not well, right? Not well. So she is raised in a cult and then offered in marriage to this false god, then offered in marriage to Ahab, as Israel and Sidon are connected politically. Just a little bit of history. I know I've given you some, but here's a little bit more. Uh, Israel was originally 12 tribes. They only had three kings before those tribes split. You had Saul, David, and Solomon. Now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes into power. There are these northern 10 tribes who are looked down on a little bit, and they come to Rehoboam and they say, our taxes are too high. You ever feel that way? Our taxes are too high. Can you lower our taxes? And so Rehoboam goes to his older advisors and says, what should I do? And they said, yeah, your dad put a very high tax burden on them. You could do well if you lowered that. So then he goes to his buddies, his young kids, and they go, what should I do? And they go, raise their taxes. Show them you're more of a man than your dad ever was. And he says, that sounds like a good idea. So he goes back and he says, I'm going to raise your taxes. Civil war. And what happens is the northern 10 tribes break off from the nation of Israel. That now after these 10 tribes break off, those 10 tribes are just called Israel. The southern two tribes are called Judah. And today, the reason why Jews are called Jews is because those northern 10 tribes were nearly destroyed, and almost every Jew today is from the tribe of Judah, and that's why they're called Jews, in case you didn't know. So the northern tribes only really had or never really had one godly king whatsoever. Ahab is from the northern tribes. He is the fourth king of that northern kingdom of Israel. He is so associated with Jezebel that biblical sources and extra biblical sources always link them together. It's not just Ahab or Jezebel, it's Jezebel and Ahab. So as soon as Jezebel becomes queen, she persuades her husband to promote the worship of these various false gods among the people of Israel. So at that time in world history, it is common. A king marries this foreign woman, and what, which God told him not to do, and they would start to build these worship places for this people's foreign gods. Uh, this happened to Solomon, nearly destroyed him. Ahab does this. It nearly destroys the northern tribes. Jezebel required the installation of a temple and an altar for Baal that was built in Samaria. Now, since she's Phoenician in her culture, she had a very strong influence in that. She was a priestess in the middle of it and probably led much of the worship there. She also had a much larger role in affairs of state than was normal for a Hebrew queen. As you can imagine, there were still people, though, in those northern tribes who were loyal to the God of Israel. Just like there are people who still live in California who still love Jesus. And I know everybody else in the country is like, nobody in California loves Jesus. Yes, there are. And you're all moving out of it. Stop it. Someone's got to be here to tell them about Jesus. Stop moving. Okay. Uh, this, and the ones who love God, it doesn't go well for them because animosities were so heightened that Jezebel eventually orders the death of all of God's prophets that stayed true to Yahweh in 
Israel, while she fully supports the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And just to give you a couple people who you see during this time, you may have heard of, maybe not, but you have two guys. Uh, one is the prophet Elijah. Elijah will come up and he's always saying, you guys need to stop this. God's going to bring judgment. This is what's going to happen. And then he runs away because they try to kill him and he's scared of him. Another person you see is a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah was a governor in the region who also loved God. 1 Kings 18 verses 3 and 4 says, Ahab summoned Obadiah who was in charge of the palace. Now Obadiah greatly feared the Lord, for when Jezebel had slaughtered the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them, fifty men per cave, providing them with food and water. Now Obadiah is later going to be identified with this prophet Obadiah in the Old Testament, but at this time he takes a job working for an evil king and queen. Why would somebody do that? How could a believer work for those people? What did Obadiah do? He used his position to save the lives of God's prophets. But everyone feared Ahab and Jezebel. Here's just one quick little story about why. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, there is a vineyard next to Ahab and Jezebel's palace. Ahab really likes it because someone's taking really good care of it. He's like, I'd really like to have this vineyard. So he goes to this guy named Naboth and he says, hey, will you sell me your vineyard? And Naboth is like, no, this is a family legacy. I'm not going to sell it to you. What does Jezebel do? She writes letters in the king's name to the town. Have a feast. Put Naboth in the place of honor so he's sitting in front of everybody. And so they do. And while that happens, she sends two wicked men to lie and say that Naboth cursed both God and the king. And they all, what? Remember, it's ancient times. So they take him out and they kill him. And then all of a sudden, who gets the vineyard? Ahab. And Ahab's, so I'm just walking through his vineyard. Oh, this is so nice, so great. The prophet Elijah shows up and he says, you know what? God has judged you. He's going to bring calamity on your house and Jezebel is going to die and be eaten by dogs. Woo! Okay, just a few years later, Ahab dies fighting the Syrians. Jezebel will install her son, Jehoram, as king. He will continue on for about 10 years. Elijah has an heir named Elisha, who continues to try and Baal worship in those northern kingdoms. He will anoint a military leader named Jehu. Jehu will go and kill Jehoram, but then he goes to get Jezebel, because Jezebel is the one who is really ruling the country at that point. She anticipates this. She sees him, looks out a window, she starts to mock Jehu, and but Jehu has already made a plan, and he tells her eunuchs, toss her out the window. She gets tossed out the window, and then all of a sudden they're like, we need to go into town, we're going to bury Jezebel. But when they get there, she had already been eaten by dogs, just like the prophet said. What? It is like full-on Game of Thrones. It's like, boom, and here it comes. It's crazy. There's a lot more to this. We did a men's study. We spent a couple months just, just talking about this. There's so much to it. I'm trying to condense it for you. But what can you learn from Jezebel? Because that's the point. What do you learn? And I'm not talking about cruelty and greed and vanity. But the interesting question is there's so many negatives. Her story is so depressing. What can you actually learn? Well, when I look at her story and what takes place, it reminds me of what we talked about a couple of years ago. Uh, we talked about this prophet named Habakkuk. It's sad and depressing, but you see some things. So I'm going to give you three things I think we can learn. Okay? Number one is this. Everything that was in Jezebel's heart has the potential to be in our hearts as well. Hard words, but we need to take that to heart. We tend to look at evil people around us, and because we haven't done the exact evil that they have done, we can say, oh, I'm not like them. We can easily become the thing that we despise. That's what we talked about in that whole Forgive series, of being able to look at our hearts and understand, is this vengeance or justice that we want? The book of Proverbs tells us that our hearts are the wellspring of our lives, and so you have to guard them. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, out of the NIV says, above all else, 
guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So the book of Proverbs is going to draw a line between the condition of the human heart to the living of a human life to ultimately the forming of a human culture. And so the heart is this poetic way of saying who we are. It's not just this organ that pumps your blood. It's your center, your essence, your nature. You're not just mind, body, spirit. We're our hearts. And so a wellspring is an ever-flowing source. It never stops. Like a fire hose, you just cannot shut off. And so what is coming out of it? What's coming out of your wellspring? Could be fresh water, could be mineral spring water, could be sewage, which is what mineral spring water smells like. Uh, But Proverbs tells us that our lives... And our hearts then are connected. You cannot stop the effects of what your life is producing without addressing your heart. Why did Jezebel do what she did? Her heart, it's what was in it. Sometimes we will not like certain things we're doing in our lives. And we will decide, I'm going to stop doing this. It's it's not good for me. And we try to become good little legalists and, and just say no. But eventually we'll move to another behavior if we don't go back to that same one. Because what is true of what Proverbs is saying is true for us. Is that the answer is in our hearts. God has to come and change our hearts. This is one of the metaphors when Jesus talks about it being born again. God has to come in through the grace of the gospel and change us. When we react poorly to something or mean to someone else and they say why'd you do that and we said oh because you did this thing or you said that or this thing happened we have to be honest and just stop right there and say the reason I did this thing is because there was not love in my heart or all the love in my heart was turned towards myself we are told guard our hearts because it is so easy for our hearts to become polluted just like Jezebel's Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Your heart is constantly going to want to draw you into ways that are opposite of who God calls us to be. Your heart is like Bill Cosby or O.J. Simpson. It thinks it's innocent. It really does. Too far? No? Okay. Uh, We can build an airtight case for anything we do. I have seen married couples do this, and they destroy their marriage, thinking the issues are all the other person's fault. And one guy who was divorced four times, getting ready to get married his fifth time, and he, think, and he thinks, I always married the wrong woman. And I go, at your fifth point, you might be the wrong dude. That might be actually the problem, right? I sit in my office with people all the time who try to convince me of their truth. Guys, we are so messed up that we will look at things in the Bible that God has said that is black and white and say, no, that's not right. What I believe is actually true. And I tell you this because I know from experience, because my own heart does this as well. We will live out of the abundance of our heart. Jezebel has an idolatrous heart. We do as well. What we believe will determine how we then behave. First off, Jezebel believed in Baal. So do many people who claim to love Jesus. We love our money, our comfort, our wealth, the things that it can give us. Uh, A lot of people are worshiping themselves and not Jesus. The second thing you see is Jezebel worshiped a lie. And the sad thing is many people who claim to be Christians, again, aren't worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping themselves, and that's idolatry, and that's a lie. Think about this. If God has to condone everything that you think is right or anything our culture at the current moment says is okay, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping you. You're worshiping culture. You're worshiping Baal. Jezebel had a proud, deceitful, murderous, unrepentant heart. What a horrible woman. Here's the question. Do we? Do we have that exact same type of heart? This is why God promises in the scriptures to give us a new heart because God is aware. He's concerned about the condition of our heart. It tells us God has inclined his heart metaphorically towards us to rescue us from our hearts. This is why we talk about repentance, this word in Christianity. What it means is to return home. 
We're returning to who God calls us to be. This is why the gospel is good news. Because if you are ever get to a place where you're honest about your heart, you're going to need some good news because you're going to realize how evil your heart is. God will say in Ezekiel 11:19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Why do you want a heart of flesh? Because you can feel and listen as God moves. And this goes back to the metaphor that Jesus will eventually use of being born again, made new. You have a brand new heart. Jezebel teaches us we have to examine our own hearts. Second thing you learn from Jezebel, as if that was not enough, is that we cannot judge what God is doing in the world based upon the actions of fallen humanity. We cannot do it. There are those today who look at evil actions of people in the world and say, God doesn't care, or God's not powerful enough to act. And I'll tell you, from what we know in the Bible, God is powerful enough to act. Why did God let Ahab and Jezebel kill the prophets? Why did God let Ahab and Jezebel kill Naboth? Why did them do all the crazy things that they did? Why, 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 why? All these questions. Well, back in Habakkuk, when we went through that, I told you that in 1950, there's this preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he got out the book of Habakkuk to preach because people People all over Europe are asking these questions. Why is this happening? Why is God letting this take place? And he said this, if you understand the book of Habakkuk, you never would have been surprised at what happened. You would have been ready. Are there people in the world today that are evil? Yes. Are there people today in the world that are evil that God will use to chastise, discipline, and grow his own people? Yes. Yes. Habakkuk 1, 5, and 6, God says this, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And no one did believe it when Habakkuk told them. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is the Babylonians. God is going to take and send in the Babylonian army to discipline his people for their sinful pride. God is going to destroy these people with a people arguably more wicked than they are. And we think that's not how God works. Apparently, it is because God's goal is to grow those who love him and he will use any means necessary to do so. Throughout history, Christianity has never spread well in people's hearts when it's been in control. It usually always spreads so fast and so much growth when it is persecuted. And it seems like we're coming to a place where that's going to happen again. And not that I'm looking forward to it, but I will tell you, it might end up being a reality. And it's going to show, do we really believe what we say we believe? Today, we typically want the opposite, right? We say, God, put that person in political office because if they were in political office, it would be easier to serve you if they're in charge. Give me this thing and then I'll follow you. And God says, I've got a different plan because it's not about you. Habakkuk will even say, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Uh, translated literally, this says, Are you not infinite? And in English, it doesn't come across as confrontational as it is. But in Hebrew, this is a rhetorical question. Because the construction is not a request for information. It's an accusation. It says, I thought you were infinite. I thought you were wise. I thought you were everlasting. But you're not. And this is probably what the prophets who are running from Jezebel felt like as she's hunting them down. We don't know what they cried out, but we know what Habakkuk cried out. Probably the same thing a lot of us would. Why? Why? Hebrew scholar Francis Anderson says the use of that particular wording, are you not infinite? He says there is actually nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere. And this is why I said what happens to Jezebel reminds me of Habakkuk. Because throughout her reign, you have these prophets 
And you have Elisha and Elijah kind of asking these questions as well. Uh, Tim Keller, I love this. He points out that when Habakkuk cries out, my God, my holy one, he's saying, I wouldn't be upset if I thought you weren't holy, but I know you are. And I wouldn't be upset if I thought I could walk away, but I know I can't. If I can't figure out life with you, how in the world am I going to figure out life without you on my own? Where else do I go? You have the words of eternal life. That's why I'm so upset. It's great. Derek Kidner says prayers like this, like Habakkuk's in the Bible, are a witness to God's understanding. Why? Because he knows how we speak when we're desperate. He knows how we speak when we don't have the answers and we're just asking why. Because God doesn't smite Habakkuk. What he does is he puts Habakkuk's prayer in the Bible for us to read all of these centuries later. And we eventually do get to see something that all those prophets didn't get to see, that God is and was faithful to his promises because God used all of these things to eventually bring about his glory and his people's ultimate good by bringing about his continued plan of redemption in the midst of a people who were wicked. God will tell Elijah and Habakkuk they can trust him even when they don't understand what he's doing. Today, you know, we ask these things like, God, why do you put up with injustice? How can you bring salvation out of injustice? And what God tells Elijah and Elisha and Habakkuk is he is saying eventually on the cross, all that's explained. All of it's explained. Because when God came into this world and went to the cross, He took the judgment we deserve. Because yes, evil deserves judgment. And so He comes, not in strength, not that it didn't tank strength, but He comes in weakness. Sin has to be paid for because of what we've done towards Him and each other. And if God just came and destroyed all the wicked people, there's no hope for us because we're wicked as well. But God said that He is full of justice and mercy. And because he's a just God, he experiences judgment on the cross on our behalf. On the cross, because he is holy, he pays our penalty. He takes the judgment upon himself. The cross brings salvation out of judgment. It brings light out of darkness. It brings redemption out of suffering and evil. And I could have really just taken a round at this point out really well, but I have one more I wanted to give you, my point number three. And that is this. Do not blindly accept something as being true simply because somebody slaps the name God, Jesus, or Christianity on it. You cannot do that. Jezebel used the name of Israel's God to kill Naboth. Uh, she most likely used it in other ways as well. How many people today do you look at in the world who claim the name of God in politics or whatever, and they just make a mockery of his name by how they act? Have you ever gotten mad at how Christians act in the world? You know, God, God why do you let your people act like this? Well, maybe they aren't actually what they claim. Maybe every person on YouTube who so many people want to listen to, you know what this guy said? That guy's crazy. Stop listening to people on YouTube. I don't know what's wrong with this. You cannot blindly accept or trust someone simply because they slapped the label of Christian on something. There's this report that came out a few years ago that said fully one quarter of Christian music isn't even done by Christians. I mean, I have had someone do work at my house. I've told you this before. They have a Jesus fish on their business card. And when they were done, all it means is, I'm going to rip you off in Jesus' name. That, that's all that it meant. Jesus says, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's not about works. That means our hearts are going to be drawn to who Christ is. They're going to be made new. They're going to be hearts of flesh. And we will begin to live differently, naturally. There are people out there who claim the name of Jesus who do not truly follow, and they mess up God's witness in the world. And God is still faithful, even when all those lies out there affect you, because God is always faithful. You will get books today that you can read that will be like three ways to remove doubt, seven ways to be a godly man, ten steps to be the better you. But in the end, all those things are of little value when you're 
life falls apart, when evil arises. Matt Chandler says it like this. He goes, what happens when you get punched in the soul? Yeah, what happens when you get punched in the soul? Because this is what happened with those prophets who were running from Jezebel. Jezebel's taking them out. They're being, they're being punched. Those are the times when our questions can actually drive us to the place where we see how infinitely large God is and then how tiny we are. We can trust God instead of people when our salvation is placed in what Jesus has done and not in people's failures. There is this comfort that can occur because from one moment to the next, we can be those who understand that and help one another when we become honest about the places that we've been punched in the soul. What we need to understand is the objective evidence of God's love and care for us is shown ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Jezebels don't win in eternity. It doesn't happen. They may triumph for a time. Things may start to look hopeless. Empires may even fall. But if you look at history, God always prevails, even if it's 900 years after Jezebel in the person of Jesus. And so we look at ourselves. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to fail. And all these problems in the world are going to seem overwhelming. Are you going to act like and be like Jezebel? Because you can go that direction. Uh, if not, you're going to encounter Jezebels in your life. But how will you begin to see the world? Will you see it as God sees it? Because if you don't, we're most likely fail to understand the mercy of God or the need for it. It's all given to us in Jesus. Jesus died while we were at our worst. How does tragedy in the world or the hypocrisy of those who claim to follow God have any real solution? How does the power of sin lose its power over our lives? It's not by coming along and trying to be a good legalist and disciplining ourselves to say, oh, sin does know me. You know what, how it works is when you understand the gospel, when you understand the good news of what Jesus did to rescue and save us, when you marvel at the gift of mercy and grace. One of our elders, Mike Harmon, always says, don't tell me how bad I am. Tell me how good Jesus is, because that's what's going to change me. That's what makes sin lose its power. When Jesus becomes more lovely than the sin, than the fear, than the doubt, than the Jezebels. In that moment, when we see the cross, we understand that whatever God has allowed into our lives can be seen as grace. And we get to behold God in Christ, not the power of sin, not the power of Jezebel. And so what do we do today? We begin to examine our hearts. We trust in God's work over us. And then like last week, when we got to the end of talking about Eve, Eve comes to that place of humility in her life and lets God be God. She says, okay, God, I'm going to stop trying to be God over my life. I'm going to trust you to be God. And that's where she ends up. And that's where we need to end up when you look at a story like this. Because a story like this relates in a lot of ways to our world today. Obsessed with wealth and comfort and things. Uh, obsessed with sex. Obsessed with all of these things that constantly want to pull our hearts and our lives away from who Christ is. And what does God do in the midst of this? He doesn't abandon His people. He keeps continuing to step into their lives, to call them back to himself, to offer them love and hope and grace, just like he does for us today. You may watch the news and you may feel overwhelmed by all the things that are happening in our world today, but guess what? The Jezebels don't win in eternity. God is still sovereign. God is still good. And God will use all of these things to grow his people, even when it hurts, even when it's difficult, because he is sovereign. He is good. And it's one of the reasons we come to communion every week. It's a reminder that on the cross, Jesus came and took the judgment we all deserved upon himself. How do we get renewed life? How do we get to live honoring and worshiping him? It's through the remembrance of what communion represents. That Jesus goes to the cross. His body is broken. That's why you break a cracker. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for you and me. 
so that we can, again, go back into relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. It's because of his grace and his mercy that God promised for millennia, this is what I'm going to do. And God is the only one who is good for every single one of his promises. And we get to trust that, even in the midst of things that we don't like and things that we don't understand. Our God is good. If you need prayer this morning, I invite you to head out of these double doors over in the lounge. There'll be some people you can go during your music. You can go after service. If you have questions about anything I talked about, they would love to be able to pray with you and walk you through anything that you're going through, especially if you feel overwhelmed in the, in the world today and you have all this anxiety. You feel like the Jezebels are winning or maybe you feel like you're a Jezebel or and something like that. They would love to be able to pray with you and just walk with you through those things. Um, at Element, we are a church that doesn't pass an offering plate. We have offering boxes next to the side wall. You can give online. But we do that because we want people to respond to God's goodness and God's grace. Uh, we don't want anybody to ever feel forced to do it. And so it's a response as we understand God's generosity first given to us. And then I would encourage you just to take those four simple questions on the end of those sermon notes and kind of walk through, you know, what is God saying to you this week as you start to think about Habakkuk or, or Jezebel or the prophets or what happened to them? All these questions. You know, is, is God trustworthy? Is, is he good? And what things can you see looking throughout history that shows that God is good for his promises? Because he is. And we can be a people who take great comfort in that. Let's be those who worship him and trust him to be God because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that you would continually remind us of your goodness, that when we see these places that so many people have pushed in the direction of something like a Jezebel, that it seems like our world is naturally falling into this place, and yet you are still good, and you are still holy, and you are still true, even when we are those who stumble and fall and run in directions that are opposite of what you're calling us into. And so I ask that you would teach us to remember that. Remember how you have rescued us. Remember your goodness. Remember your grace. And that as we behold the beauty of the gospel, we would be those who are so enamored with it that would pull our eyes away from Asherah and Baal and back towards the God who has actually rescued and saved us. God, if we're honest, our hearts are so fickle. The, the wellspring that is inside of us many times is not producing fresh water. It produces sewage. And yet you still come and promise to make us clean. And so we thank you for the beauty and the grace of that. And I ask that through all of this, we would trust you to be who you are from a place of humility, from a place of understanding your sovereignty, and that we'd be those who believe and trust you over everything else that our world throws at us. Because you are good, because you are holy, because you are true, because you are majestic, because you are full of grace and mercy and love and life and hope given to us. So teach us to live in the great mercy we received. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. And I feel drop these curtains. And as he does, what I'd like you to do, you know, maybe through the first song or whatever, just ask God what your wellspring is producing right now. 
Like if you had to label what is coming out of your own heart right now, what would it be? And be honest about it. Because that is the only way that we're ever going to be able to deal with what our hearts are producing, but with our, what our hearts look like. Do we trust, do we believe the things that God has said? Are we always trying to twist that into something that we want? Do we, are we really a people who will love and serve and follow Him because of His goodness? Or are we simply looking to try and bolster up ourselves? Are we trying to make God in our image rather than understanding that we are made in His image? So right now, say, God, what, what, is, what is my heart actually producing? And then if you're honest enough and you see something nasty in that, do you understand that's a great place to be? Because God promises to clean up, to give us a new heart, to exchange that out. But it's never going to happen until we're honest enough about what we are actually producing. So ask Him. And when He reveals it to you, lay that before Him. Come and take communion. Again, we don't pass that throughout the room either. You've got to come and take it as a response. Sing some songs with us. And then head out into this world this week, understanding that Jezebels don't win. Jesus has already won. And He will bring about all things towards His grace and the fruition of all that He has promised.